Pushkin Industries and Scribd Audio present The Myths of Meritocracy, a revisionist history anthology, written and hosted by Malcolm Gladwell. Introduction My name is Malcolm Gladwell. I have a podcast called Revisionist History, where every year I devote 10 episodes to whatever things happen to be on my mind. Once, I did an episode on how McDonald's ruined its french fries. Once, I did an episode on how dogs could save the day in the battle against COVID. I did one about the saddest song ever written. I jump all over the place. The listener is never supposed to know what wild leap revisionist history is going to take next. With one exception. One major exception. There's one topic that everyone who knows me knows I will return to again and again. Education particularly what I consider to be the insane educational system in place in the United States. Now, why am I so obsessed with education? I could give you a million reasons, but let me just focus on one for the moment. I'm obsessed with the American educational system because I'm a Canadian, and nothing makes the American system look worse than knowing there's another better system just to the north. Let me give you a brief example of what I mean. The story of how I applied to college. If you're an American, I'm guessing you're expecting me to launch into a long and convoluted story involving college tutors, sleepless nights, endless drafts of personal statements, visits to dozens of campuses, a list of safety schools, agonizing decisions, long, somber conversations around the kitchen table late into the night about where I could get in, should get in, might get in. That's not the story you're getting, because I'm Canadian, remember? I applied to college one evening after dinner in the fall of my senior year in high school. College applicants in Ontario in the 1970s were given a single sheet of paper which listed all the universities in the province. It was my job to rank them in order of preference. Then I had to mail the sheet of paper to a central college admissions office. The whole process probably took 10 minutes. My school sent in my grades. Separately, I vaguely remember filling out a supplementary two-page form listing my interests and activities. There were no SAT scores to worry about because, in Canada, we didn't have to take the SATs. I don't know whether anyone wrote me a recommendation. I certainly never asked anyone to write one. I put the University of Toronto first on my list, the University of Western Ontario second, and Queen's University third. I was working off a set of brochures that I'd sent away for. I picked Toronto first because I thought the pictures in their brochure looked cool. My parents' contribution consisted of my father agreeing to drive me one afternoon to the University of Toronto campus where we visited the residential college I was most interested in. I walked around. My father poked his head into the admissions office, chatted with the admissions director, and probably either said a few short words about the talents of his son or, knowing my father, he simply remarked on the loveliness of the delphiniums in the college flower beds. Then we went out for ice cream. A few weeks later, I got a letter in the mail. I was in! Hallelujah! Oh. And I've forgotten one crucial detail. At the time that I applied to college, I had not graduated from high school. If memory serves, 
I still haven't graduated from high school. I just never bothered to get the necessary credits. And no one in the admissions office at the University of Toronto seemed to care too much about that. Perhaps my father said something like this to the admissions officer. Oh, and by the way, Malcolm hasn't gotten around to graduating from high school, but he'll be okay. And guess what? I had a great four years at the University of Toronto. I was okay. And then, at the grand old age of 20, I moved to the United States. And all of a sudden, I realized that what I went through to get into college bore absolutely no resemblance, none, to what everyone I met had gone through. I was in shock. I mean, when you're young, you invariably engage in small acts of solipsism. You assume that your own experience is a reasonable guide to the experience of those in your peer group. Oh, man, did I get shaken out of my solipsism in no time. First thing, I couldn't get over how hierarchical the American system was. I mean, the people were constantly talking about how they went to a better school than some other school or a good school with the clear implication that they were bad schools out there that they, for the grace of God, might have ended up at. I never thought that way in Canada. I applied to three schools back in Canada, Toronto, Western, and Queens. But had I not gotten into Toronto and ended up at one of the other two, I wouldn't have considered myself a failure. I never thought that Toronto was better than Queens or Western. It was just different. They were like McDonald's, Chipotle, and Arby's. And if I couldn't get a Big Mac at the first, I would get a taco at the second, or a roast beef sandwich at the third. Next thing, it took me a long time to grasp the idea that the so-called good schools were places that maintained their status by not letting students in. The prestige associated with going to, say, Yale, was a function, at least in part, of how many people out there wanted to get into Yale and couldn't. It was the logic of the nightclub, and it had never occurred to me that a university was a nightclub. I thought it was more like a hospital, an institution judged by how many patients it took in and how many of those later emerged fully healed. Next thing. Americans talk about their schools a lot. They wear sweatshirts with their school crest on them. They spend hours talking about what they did or what courses they took or who they met and on and on. It's weird. College to me was a pleasant four years of mediocre food, lots of beer, touch football games in the snow, and a whole lot of impassioned late-night arguments. When I left at the end of my time there, it never occurred to me that this had been a moment to be cherished until my dying days. I had eaten my Big Mac. It was time to move on. And I haven't mentioned money, have I? Good Lord. Let me just say this and call it a day. In my final year of college, the tuition at the University of Toronto was raised from $899 a year to $900 a year. And we held a protest. My point is, you can imagine why this subject has obsessed me ever since I moved to the United States. And one of the great privileges of my life is that I get to inflict my obsessions on my long-suffering listeners. So what do I have in store for you? A collection of the education episodes from the first six seasons of Revisionist History. There are nine stories in total, some of which aired as far back as 2016. They range from a reevaluation of the Supreme Court's famous anti-segregation decision, Brown versus Board of Education, To the time, I challenged my assistant, Camille, to a contest to see who could score the highest on the LSAT. 
Do the nine chapters here represent my entire thinking about American education? Of course not. I've just gotten started. I have many, many more things to say, but I do want you to keep a few things in mind as you listen. The first thing is that I am as convinced as anyone of the quality of America's best colleges and high schools. I remember once years ago, I was in South Korea talking to educators, and when I said a few unkind things about American higher education, they were astonished. Do you understand that we would kill to have your system? They said, and they were right. There are things that the American system does brilliantly. The big, well-funded elite research institution is a particularly American phenomenon and represents one of the country's greatest contributions to the world of knowledge. On the Upper East Side of Manhattan, there is a small, science-only, incredibly elite graduate school called Rockefeller University. And if you walk any of their halls, you will quite literally see students from every corner of the world. They come to places like Rockefeller because you simply can't find places like Rockefeller anywhere else in the world. But, and this is a big but, I wonder if America's success at providing for the top of the pyramid, at creating places for future geniuses to be taught by current geniuses, sometimes blinds us to a more important question. How good a job do we do at educating the middle, or the group just below the middle? There are an awful lot more people in the middle and just below the middle than there are at the top. And you can make a very good case that the future success of the American project depends more on how those people are treated and how their talent is developed than it does on how warm and comfortable and inviting we make the world for the favored few. That idea is a big preoccupation in the chapters that you are about to hear. Shouldn't we be more concerned with the middle? The United States was a country founded on an egalitarian promise, but it ended up building institutions like its best colleges and hospitals that do a fantastic job of serving the gifted and the privileged. But when it comes to everyone else, the U.S. just kind of mails it in. How did that happen? I can't stop trying to find out. One last story before we get going. It's about the first of the chapters you're about to hear. Carlos doesn't remember. I met Carlos through a friend of mine, Eric Eisner, who runs a scholarship program for gifted students from the poorer neighborhoods of Los Angeles. I had worked with Eric's group for years and wanted to do something about them. I picked Carlos, a remarkable young man with a harrowing personal story. Carlos isn't his real name, of course. It didn't seem right to identify him. But a few years later, I ran into him, and Carlos told me that he was in a summer academic program. In one of his classes, he said, they were studying inequality, and the teacher actually played the Carlos episode for the students. No one, including the teacher, knew it was about him. Carlos told me he didn't know what to do at first. But then he stood up and he said to the class, I'm Carlos. That story was about me. I find it very emblematic that the Carlos of Carlos doesn't remember had been sitting in that very classroom all summer and no one knew where he'd come from. It points to why it's so hard for the American system to address the real problems in our schools, because the stories aren't obvious, they're hidden. The students saw the handsome, brilliant, grown-up Carlos and assumed they knew who he was. 
but they didn't. There are lots of Carloses out there, and in this anthology, you will get to hear some of their stories, and a whole lot more.